Amen. We are, as we said, uh, picking back up again with a series a lot of you have been asking about, and that is, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Why in the world would you uh, do 20 sermons on uh, 20 centuries of church history? We try to take the meta theme of each century. I mean, it's impossible to reduce a century in 22 minutes, but we can learn so much. Well, for a couple of reasons. One, the things you and I are going to face in 2009 that we think are brand new, I promise you, faithful men and women, the Spirit of God has led them through stuff in the centuries before, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel if we can learn from them how they thread that needle. Second of all, as we ramp up and work with these other churches and ministries, hey, four weeks from today, if you want, we can take now up to 300. We're going to go down another worship field trip. If you're visiting and look at this being your church home, we periodically... Uh, go to other churches and worship with them. We're going to St. Sophia's, uh, the Greek Orthodox Cathedral. And they're gonna, I, their service is right out of the 5th century. And one of the things we'll find out, the more you know about the stream of history, where our African American, what are their experiences, the Korean churches we're gonna be working with as we go into Lent together in our small groups, the more you can appreciate them is why it's important you know their background lives. We come to the 6th century. It's a time of such cultural and civilization convulsions. It makes the headlines that you and I read look like a pie menu at Marie Callender's. Things were horribly hard. And because of that, the church started to fight with each other. That's odd, isn't it? James writes to the very first followers of Jesus, the first church, and tells them where these fights come from. If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to James 4. It's on page 982 in your pew Bible. James 4 and verses 1 down just through 10. James reminds them that the fights they have are not so much over issues and content as more out of the nature of our hearts. If you're visiting, we read this together out loud as a sign of God's people. When we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And when you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. Let's read this 1 through 10 as you read. Listen, you're reading God's word. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it. So you commit murder and you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the Scripture says... God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but those words will simply last forever. 
Where do the fightings and quarrels from you originate? James says, from the conflicting desires you have. It's true in our personal lives, our family lives. It's true in our churches. And it's true within the world. And the reason that we are taking a look at these, the sixth century is not only does it come along next in our series, but they have so much to teach us of how to thread the needle on managing conflict. Managing conflict with the world. How do you and I, with our mouths, love the world in a classy way and yet stand for the truth when they're in error? How do we within the church, how do we manage conflict in here? And how do we manage conflict within our own homes because of what's going on inside? In a time of unbelievable social and civilization upheaval, Rome has fallen. We saw in the first meta-themes, the first century, the big issue was Gentiles, racial. What do the Gentiles do now with this Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and they're grafted in? The second century, the big issue was the Scriptures. Christ didn't return, and how did they know what was authoritative and trustworthy? The third century, the big question was persecution. Do I need to die for Christ, and how do you handle that? By the fourth century, the question is, what do you do when you finally get power? When Constantine becomes a Christian, and the Roman Empire is now a Christian empire. And in the fifth century, last time we saw what happens when it all falls apart. When Rome was sacked by the Vandals and the Goths and the Visigoths, and the empire fled to the east to Constantinople to hide, how do they respond? If you were alive right now in the sixth century, first of all, you would be very cold this time of the year. There was no such thing as heating. If you lived to be 30 to 35, that would be considered a long life. Rome would be in ruins, all these different tribes coming in, all the glory and the splendor of Greece and Rome is now gone, the barbarians are ruling, the church has heresies all around, and God comes and speaks to them and tells them through some great men and women, do not be afraid. The question of how these problems come about has most of all, as the East and the West start to split, the Orthodox Church, which will become the Greek Orthodox or Eastern or Russian, and the Roman Catholic. They already had different languages and customs. But you notice when pressure comes from the outside, we take it out on people close to us. Just like in that wonderful sketch that Bad did. When we're mad at somebody else, sometimes we have this misdirected anger at others. And it happens very often in the church when we come to problems of disagreeing, and there's a way out of that. This communion table says, the way you control your mouth is you give it to God. You yield your heart, we yield our lives, and God can take these broken lives and piece them together. If you've got your Bible, let's turn back and take a look again at that passage in James, the fourth chapter, starting in page 982. I had the uh, great privilege one time of doing a 70th wedding anniversary. It's the oldest that I've ever done. And I asked him what was the secret of staying married for 70 years. He said, well, first of all, don't die. <laughs> he said, second of all, I've long ago, I was taught, rather than have a fight my, with my wife, I was ever mad at her, I'd go outside and walk it off. He said, my life has pretty much been an outdoor existence. Uh, I was gone that way. <laughs> But James says in verse 1 here, Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Pause. We normally say, well, it's the issues. We're really dealing with stuff. It's, 
it's our theology, it's our lifestyle. It's, and sometimes it is, but James says, no, 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 no. Do they not come from the, and the word is thunamos, this deep craving, they're at war within you. You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You'd say, well, no, that's an exaggeration. According to Jesus. Jesus said, if you were angry with your brother, not anger about the issue or the behavior they did or something, but in your heart, the difference between that and murder is the person that pulls a trigger on a gun is more honest. When you want them out of this world and you want them out of this life because they got in the way with you and they hurt you, that is a murderer. It hasn't to do with the consequence of taking a life. It's a question of your heart. And James is here echoing what his half-brother, Jesus, said. You covet and you do not have, so you engage in conflict, in conflict of these wars. You do not have because you don't ask. In other words, you don't go to God because you know when you go, Lord, would you burn their house down? Then he's going to say, no. We don't ask God, God, just make me more famous, more pretty, more wealthy, better off. Make me a little worshipped by the world. And God says, not going to do it. We say, I knew it, that's why I didn't ask. Then we ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You want to spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterers. Don't you know what friendship with the world means to be at enmity with God? Now the church in the 6th century was trying to figure this out. There are huge, first of all, the Middle Ages. We're starting studying them now for the next 10 weeks. The Middle Ages from the, what is the first age, was the ancient world. And history has called it medieval, the Anglo-Saxon for Middle Ages. About 500, the collapse of Rome. Gone are the Babylonian, the Egyptian, the Greek, the Roman, the ancient world. Not as come yet as the Renaissance and the nation states and what we call the modern world. And the longest period of church history, a thousand years, is the most confusing to us. The Middle Ages. But it's remarkable what God was doing with these people. Huge migrations of people. The, not only the northern, the Vandals, the Goths and Visigoths coming down into Rome. And why were they? Because the Huns and Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan were pushing in the Mongol empires were pushing in. Not only that, they were moving from the south down in Africa. What's going on today? You live in the exact times almost as the 6th century. Do you know what nation has one of the biggest problems with illegal immigrants? Mexico. You don't know that. They do. Many people coming up from Latin America and Central America are invading into Mexico while a lot of Mexicans are coming up here. You go over to Great Britain right now, have you been to England recently? Everybody who's waiting your tables and taking out the trash and working in the hotels are the Poles, people from Poland. When they joined the European Union and they allowed, they thought 50,000 Poles would go to Great Britain for jobs. 500,000 came looking for work. So there's this huge movement. In Europe, the immigration there is Muslim. Because North Africa, all the fighting and conflict, the northern Africans who are Muslim are coming in to Europe. Exact same thing. Not only that, but it was a time of God raising up great women and men to be missionaries. As the society collapses, the church doesn't retreat yet. They're going to in the next few centuries. But they start to pick up and say, we're going to move out. And this discipline of their mouths of starting to fall apart... 
By that, what I mean is between the East and Western nations, as they're getting beat up by the tribes, they naturally turn on each other, sometimes over legitimate issues. I don't want to understate good theology needs to exist for no other reason than to answer bad theology. But a lot of the fights, if you look over it, it's not really the issue of truth. It's the issue of anger and being hurt. God sent three powerful people. One was in the east by the name of Justinian. If you uh, sign up to go with us next week down to St. Sophia's, you'll see this beautiful uh, mosaic cathedral that we'll sit and worship in. One Sunday uh, a month is in English, and that's the first Sunday. It's we're going down, not in Greek. And you'll see mosaics, and you'll see one of the mosaics there is of Justinian. He was the emperor of the Roman world. He fled from Rome to Constantinople that Constantine had built because Rome was, was sacked by the barbarians. He wanted to try to defend the West. He gathered his armies together. But he was a Christian. And he found out one other thing. He wanted to bring the church together. Christians were fighting over the issue of what's called the monophysites. The church, the first 500 years, debated, was Jesus a person or was he God? And the answer was yes. He was fully God and fully human. The monophysites said, no, he was really just divine. There was nothing about him that was human. It just appeared to be that way. And that was a heresy, and the church split over that. And so, believe it or not, the emperor wanted to try to bring them together. Do you know that today in churches in America we sometimes fight? Do you know that? I don't know or not. Nothing has changed. And so what the emperor couldn't bring them together, but he tried. He tried to restore the Roman Empire. He closed down the school of Athens for 980 years that had been teaching philosophy. And it'll take the church eight centuries before they realize the great truths and Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. But he's trying to protect the church from this fallen Roman empire and the pagans and all the horrible things that they had done. He built, he also sent missionaries to China in the sixth century for two reasons. The good news of Jesus... And he wanted to smuggle back silkworms. China alone had the market on silk and all the money. And so they wanted to think if they could get some silkworms back, they could weave their own. And he reached out to the West. He defended Rome one time in the year 522 from the Vandals. And then in 555 from the Franks. And a young boy by the name of Gregory watched this. Gregory was born in a very wealthy Roman family. They were Christian. He was educated, a brilliant mind. And he became a monk. He gave up all the wealth of his family so he could... He saw the church getting worldly. And the monastic movement in the Middle Ages, every time the church goes corrupt and worldly, people try to retreat from it. By the way, there's a monastic movement going on today in our home churches. Do you know in Los Angeles and across America, one of the big movements right now are home churches? Particularly young believers that are so disappointed and disgusted by the organized church, they're just trying to have their own churches in their homes. In fact, Benedict of Nursia in the 6th century wrote the Benedictine Order. If you have Benedictine Catholic friends, it goes all the way back. Even in our new members class coming up, I believe in it, the fellowship. Why you need to be in a small group? Because that's the church who loves you. But a small group on its own, the trouble is it can get into problems. <laughs> yeah, I told you before, uh, I don't know how many new member classes ago, 
somebody said, you know, came up and said, you know, Pastor, I'm against joining the organized church, but I'm going to join Bel Air because there's nothing organized about it. <laughs> so thank you. But just on your own, where is there to be the discipline and the nurture and the connecting? And that's why Gregory, when they asked him to come back and to become the first leader of Rome, he started to put forward the first doctrine on the Pope, the papacy. Not because he was a power monger, but because the church was coming up with heresies every half hour. Do you know right now as the church is exploding, do you know as we sit here today, if this was an average day, 20,000 Chinese will give their life to Christ. 40,000 Africans will give their life to Christ. 30,000 Indians will give their life to Christ. 100,000 people a day, conservative estimates, are giving their life to Christ. There is such a need for leadership out there because what if we don't teach them and help them, you know what they're going to come up with? Wacky stuff. And that's why Gregory said we need to have the Pope. We'll find out that has its own challenges that goes along. So he reached out to the West. He also was a, believed in making great worship. They actually had arguments about what style of worship in the church then. Can you believe that? See how nothing changes. And so he wrote, if you ever read, we sang in the first service of the Father's Love Begotten. Gregorian chant isn't from this Gregor. It was actually later, but they attribute it because the Mass, any of you who are Catholic or have Catholic friends, the order of the Mass that you read pretty much came from Gregory in the 6th century. It hasn't changed much at all. So there was Justinian in the east and Gregory in the west and then this wild guy up north by the name of Columba. Columba was an Irish, he was a Pict. The northern part of Scotland, they weren't Scots yet, they were the Picts. He was Celtic. He was actually born in an area uh, outside of County Donegal of the McLaughlin House. And he was called the Dove of the Church. He was really salty and rowdy, in fact. Because you know the Scots? Any of you who join our church, and we'd love to have you, whether you join Bel Air or not, find a church that's preaching Christ and join it. If you join a Presbyterian church, you're going to find out something. How Presbyterians win a war is they bore it to death. (laughs) And that's designed because the Scots and the Irish kill each other over the wrong colored kilt. He went to go get a copy of the Psalter. Do you know this Bible that you are holding? Do you know what what people would have paid for in the 6th century to have a copy of the Word of God? Those that could read, most of them couldn't, is why they came up with stained glass and a lot of the icons, which when we go down to St. Sophia's, to educate them to the biblical stories. But he had, by a gentleman by the name of Finian, St. Finian, they copied a beautiful Psalter, a copy of the Psalms, and he took it. Finian thought he was just loaning it to him. They got their troops together. They had such a battle that hundreds of people died over the stolen Bible. And so Columba felt so bad, he said, All right, I'll go save some living person for every person that died in battle. So we went to Iona in Scotland and started to evangelize the Picts, the future Scots. And what he found out is he said something. As we go into starting our church down at Union, downtown, and in the South Bay of the Lord willing, uh, this coming next fall, do you use the Roman model or the Celtic model? The Roman model is you believe something before you belong. We call that confessing Christ. The Celtic model is you belong first in order to believe. 
Because these crazy tribes, they believed all this wacky stuff. And they said, that's all right, you're still a part of us, come on in. (laughs) And then they hoped to lead them to Christ. But this is an amazing thing Columbus said. To not belong is to exile your soul for life, unquote. If you're not plugged into Bel Air or somewhere in a small group or a member in that way, Columbus says, you're a fool. You're exiling your soul. You've put yourself under your own solitary confinement. There's no way you need brothers and sisters next to you, even the ones you don't like, even the ones that are hard to love, because God uses that. And then what happened would be the challenge of the plagues. When they sent the merchants to China to bring back the goods of the east, coming back through Transasia, they brought back some rodents with some fleas that had the beginning of the bubonic plague. The plague will hit Europe ten times, the worst being in the 13th century. When someone sneezes today, why do you say to them, God bless you, rather than when they cough? When they cough, you normally go, gross. When they sneeze, you say, God bless you. Because the beginning of the bubas, those lymph nodes that got this plague, if you weren't treated within a week to two weeks, you were dead. By the way, amoxicillin can cure the bubonic plague. But they had no antibiotics. And they brought back this, and all these people are dying. Christians are dying. Justinian himself got the bubonic plague. He survived it. Why would God let plagues hurt this world? Why does God allow this evil? We found out for two reasons. We don't understand everything God is doing, but to glorify and purify. God is not the author of evil, but He will allow pain and suffering into our life that you and I don't like. I don't like this either. And God doesn't like it, but He likes what He redeems. And if you're going to have a free world, there needs to be consequences. And then also somehow to glorify His name. He's sifting and purifying. Does it really matter so much that we have church fights over doctrine, over whether Jesus, whether Mary was the Theotokos or the Christotokos, the bearer of Christ or the bearer of God? Does it really matter if we debate about whether Jesus was fully human and fully man? And the answer is yes. Not to the place ever of rudeness. Not to the place ever of breaking fellowship unless they can't even confess the basicness of Christ. And then our job is to go and love them. We're not here to persuade the world by our eloquence and overpowering them with logic and wisdom. That doesn't save anybody. Yeah, good theology needs to exist to answer bad theology. Absolutely. But when we come to this table, that means you and I come in the fights that we have within the church as well as the church fighting with the world, as even within our friends, means that we say, oh God, use my mouth as an agent of healing, of grace, of peace, not of wounding. Sometimes we don't confront because our whole life we were taught there's only one way to have conflict. Win, lose. Win, lose. And so a lot of Christians avoid all sorts of conflict, not because they're so holy, but they're just tired. And they don't want to fight. And so we compromise. Mr. Smiles on the outside. Mr. Ulcer on the inside. Miss Sweetness on the outside. Miss I'll burn your house down on the inside. (laughs) And we get this hypocritical life going along. And this table says no. Sometimes you care enough to confront. It's all right to say no. 
It's all right to say, stop it. It's all right to say, I cannot do that. But you always come with saying, but I'll see how the Lord can, what I can do for you. Sometimes within the church, we have to discipline each other. It's to restore. It's not to grab somebody and throw them out the hill. That's what we do with pastoral staff. No, that's what we're called together, to come together and to love because it's to bring them back to the place of healing. Sometimes even with our own families. Outside of the resolution to lose weight and quit smoking, one of the greatest resolutions is to be kinder to the people we're close to. To watch our mouths this next year. James says, nobody can control their own tongue. But God, by His grace, can control it through us. As we said, uh, they had stained glass because of the illiteracy. Uh, and by the way, uh, most of the cathedrals don't have pews because you stood for the Mass. You stood the entire worship service. And you would come in, and many weren't allowed to come in, and only those that were allowed to come to this table as we take hands with them from across the centuries. And as they stood there in worship, they couldn't read, they couldn't hear, but the cathedrals are made so the sound will bounce back at them. They would see in the stained glass the stories. If you've ever been to the cathedral in Reims in France, and the rose window, it's just unbelievable. It's about the size of uh, this sanctuary. (laughs) It was bombed in World War II, and the people from the town came out, and they collected the little pieces and the big pieces, even the tiniest shards, and they held them together for four years until after World War II and the Nazis left. And then they hired the greatest artist that they could find in Europe. And when you go now and you see the new rose window, new being same glass from centuries ago, but put together in a new way, it's even more beautiful than the original design. The red glass, which of course is the most expensive because gold alloy, the nanoparticles make it red. And that's what this table says. God says, you come here and you give me your busted up lives. You give me those relationships that are hurt and wounded. You give me those dreams that have just been shattered before you last year. You give me that body of yours and those that life, and I'll make you a living work of spiritual art. I'm that good. If we let him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather at this, your table. And we thank you that by your Spirit you've called us to this place. Lord, may this be a table that this very day loudly proclaims to us that you're a God who is a redemptive God, a God of peace, a God who wants to reconcile us and restore us to the relationship that we were originally created to enjoy for all eternity with you, fellowship with you, harmony with you, peace with you. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, come by the power of your spirit and set aside these common elements to the specific sacred use this morning. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, come and rule and reign in each of our hearts. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, grant us your peace. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.